In today's episode, we pass the time with an airing of grievances with the second installment of The Worst Comics I've Ever Read. Did your most maligned book make the list? Stay tuned for some serious misery business. Welcome once again into the Sanctum Sanctorum of Nerddom that is the Nerd by Word podcast. I'm Lieutenant Commander Chris alongside my pal and co-host Jedi Master Dave, and we're here once again to bring you another episode chock full of nerdy delight. On today's show, we are embarking on a perilous journey, the second installment of the worst comics I've ever read. But first, we want to keep you abreast of all things new and nerd-worthy, so let's fire up the music for... Dave, what's happening on your end of the multiverse? So uh, Netflix has uh, recently released the uh, new Masters of the Universe Revelations cartoon, which famously is the brainchild of uh, Kevin Smith and uh, has been pretty hotly anticipated after the release of a couple of really interesting trailers that seem to promise a lot of really cool Masters of the Universe action. And now with... uh, you know, just a few days behind us of having this, uh, the first half of this series out in the open, I think uh, the first five episodes, fans of He-Man have taken to review bombing uh, the series. And uh, within just 24 hours of release of the series, uh, the on the side Rotten Tomatoes, it stands at 25% positive fan reaction, which is in stark contrast to a 94% positive critical reaction. Now, as a long-term Masters of the Universe fan, I'm, I'm kind of flabbergasted. I have not uh, actually sat down and watched these five episodes yet. I'm hoping to get started uh, within the week or so on, on watching those. But the big complaint, apparently, from fans, what I've been able to glean, is that it doesn't focus enough on He-Man and has um, promoted the character of Tila into a more prominent role. And this kind of just reeks a little bit to me of the same kind of reaction that we got to Captain Marvel, for example, where there was big review bombing going on after the casting of Brie Larson. It seems like there's a certain section of nerd fandom that that fears strong women, and any time that a franchise features a strong woman, they seem to have to uh, make their voice be heard in some negative way. Um, I find that regrettable. Again, I've not seen the show yet myself, uh, and I will form my own opinion on it, whether it is uh, as good as critics say it is. Um, but I still remain pretty excited about it and find it regrettable that now, once again, nerds are um, resorting to review bombing as a way of expressing themselves. What say you, Chris? Yeah, so uh, I, uh, as we detailed when the uh, trailer first announced, we did a previous news story. I, I know nothing about the series. I know nothing about the lore rather than just pop culture references, Skeletor memes and, and what have you. 
Um, this show kind of was on the downturn by the time I was born and it really came of age to remember watching anything. So um, I'm, I'm kind of hesitant um, as to whether I should pick this up uh, without any previous exposure, find a way to watch the old stuff or what have you. But um, even though I know nothing about the content or the characters, I can't say that I'm surprised by this story. Unfortunately, it's become too commonplace in nerddom that we have this certain sect of toxic fanboys that are so in opposition to anything that is not straight white male protagonists. It, it, it is sheerly exhausting at this point. In fact, it's one of the primary reasons that we pitched doing the show together is because it's so exhausting. It's, it's almost to the point where we're back towards closeting ourselves as nerds because you don't want to come across as one of those toxic idiots. And so uh, we really want to just create this safe space to talk about the things that we do enjoy. And even if we disagree, then we can have an actual conversation about it rather than just hurling xenophobic, misogynistic, racist insults at one another. So, I mean, one of the, one of the most polarizing entries in nerd media in recent years was The Last Jedi. You and I have very different opinions, as we detailed on that episode, but we did so in a respectful manner. And it was all based in, like, what our criteria were for that film and what we were hoping to get out of it. It was not this strong female lead ew white male erasure like it's 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 beyond sickening at this point it just turns my stomach yeah i'm right there with you um enough detailed before i come you know from a family that has a lot of strong uh females uh, in it and i always you know grew up around that general vibe and um it's it seems very odd to me that uh, there is a, a section of nerddom that is so insecure in their masculinity that any time that there is a strong female they feel like their masculinity is somehow threatened um now as for the quality of the show itself uh, i can't really speak to that yet i've not watched it yet i do have high hopes uh, based on the trailer and based on some of the things uh that kevin smith has said on on twitter um and even if it uh, you know takes a little bit of a time and fo and focuses more on Tila, I think that's a really good thing uh, to some extent because ultimately uh, it's always been He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Uh, there is a very big sprawling cast of action figures. I mean, I mean characters that uh, <laughs> we know could have been fleshed out a little bit more in the original series and and taken that opportunity with some modern storytelling sensibilities. It could be extremely interesting. So I'm, I'm still cautiously optimistic that this show uh, is going to be a positive experience for, for me as a long-term, uh, long-time masters of the universe fan. And, and, and completely from, again, from the outside looking in with, with no previous knowledge about this series, it's as advertised in my mind because the title of the show is Masters of the Universe Revelation. It's not He-Man, and the Masters of the Universe, as the original cartoon implies. So it's it's telling you right there, just in the naming of the show, that it is not going to be solely focused on He-Man. At least, I mean, that's just, again, from my my outside perspective. And 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 while on the topic of Kevin Smith I, I and, and this whole idea of toxic fandom, he said on his uh, Fat Man Beyond podcast several years back, and it always stuck with me, 
Um, there was a huge backlash with the uh, Donald Glover when he was, you know, speculating the, like a Miles Morales screen adaptation of some sort. And there was, of course, the predictable outrage. And and he, you know, as a straight white guy said, you know what, if you grew up with Spider-Man being Peter Parker, a white guy, those stories are never going to go away. You will always have those. And this is just a new story that we're going to tell. And, and it, you know, the, it's it's very, you know, deliciously ironic that, you know, he's suffering from or one of his projects is suffering from the same type of backlash. But I still hold to that kind of thought uh, process is like if you are so beholden to He-Man and this male dominated storyline, go back and watch the old stuff. If you are so beholden to the nostalgia and the quote unquote good old days, then more power to you but this is just something that we're going to do differently here and if you don't like it go back to 1984 fair enough all right chris what are you bringing to the nerd news table this week well uh hollywood superstar actor michael b jordan who portrayed the antagonist killmonger in 2018's black panther appears to be working on a super project for the distinguished competition collider broke the news this week that jordan and his production company Outlier Society are currently working on a limited series for HBO Max centered around Val Zod, the Superman of DC's Earth 2. Created by Byword favorite writer Tom Taylor and artist Nicholas Scott and Robson Rocha, who we tragically just lost uh, here recently. Uh, created in 2014, Val Zod is a black Kryptonian who is orphaned after his parents are executed by the Kryptonian High Council. This project is in no way associated with the J.J. Abrams-produced and ta Coates-scribed film featured in a previous Nerd News story, which is centered on Clark Kent and Cal-El, who is set to be portrayed for the first time by a black actor. Many fans saw this announcement as a bad-faith response to the accusations of racism on the set of 2017's Justice League by cyborg actor Ray Fisher. While Jordan has been rumored to have been working on a black Superman project in the past, he was quick to shoot down any inclined connections with this film, saying recently, I'm flattered that people have me in that conversation. It's definitely a compliment, but I'm just watching on this one, end quote. In a recent editorial for Black Girl Nerds, Jamie Broadnax reported that Jordan preferred to distance himself from the race bending of the traditionally white Cal-El, character and preferred instead to highlight a story like that of Valzad, an exclusively black character. While promoting his film Without Remorse in April, Jordan said, quote, it's important for people to see themselves in roles that they normally wouldn't see. What that does to the next generation, to a kid or somebody that didn't think that is something that they could achieve. Now they're thinking about it and daydreaming about it, end quote. Dave, you are our resident Superman stan. What are your thoughts on all this? I'm actually really excited to see an adaptation of Valzad. I think that is a, a very, very cool um, Elseworld alternate take on, on a Superman character. And I'm very, very curious to see um, you know, how hard this adaptation leans into the comic book version or whether they decide to take a little bit more liberties. But yeah, I'm, I'm really, really into this. Um, I'm a big fan of that character. Um, although it's not, you know, traditional Superman, um, Kal-El, you know, Clark Kent, it is still a Superman that has, 
um, a lot of the things that make Superman such a great, compelling character. So I'm, I'm very, very optimistic about this adaptation, Chris. And uh, Michael B. Jordan is, is, is a fantastic actor who has absolutely great, great, great chops. So here's hoping that he'll do more than just produce and maybe, you know, decides to take on the, the role of Val Zod himself. And I should say, uh, in addition, it is heavily speculated that he will be the leading role of Val Zod in the in the production, but that has not been confirmed at this point. But um, yeah, I'm excited about this as well. I'm a huge fan. Uh, I think that in in uh, in a film, even like Fan Four Stick, which is absolutely reprehensible, I thought that he was one of the few bright spots that made that even palatable as as uh, something to watch on my screen. Um, you know, and, and, and other things that I've seen him in, I just absolutely love it. He Killmonger is one of the upper echelon of comic book villains, not just MCU that I've ever seen on the screen. So I, I, I hold him in high regard and, and everything that he's been in and his production company as well. I've heard great things about. All right, that wraps up our nerd news segment. After this, our first break, we're going to be coming back with our byword big talk of the worst comics we've ever read. Part two. We now arrive for the big kahuna of this week's episode, better known as our byword. As our listeners know, we always end our episodes with nerd commendations. Bits of nerd media that we suggest you check out. One of the central ideas, as we previously mentioned on this episode... When we were creating this show, it was we wanted to create a safe, toxic-free environment for fellow nerds to enjoy the things that they love and to open the door to new nerds, not be a gatekeeper, uh, new nerds who may need a tour guide or two through this crazy multiversal journey. So in case you're wondering why in the world we would double down on a topic like the worst comics we've ever read, the answer is really twofold. One, if you're in that boat of starting to read comics for the first time and you don't know where to start, we want to help you avoid these landmines in addition to recommending the good stuff. Two, think of this as a support group session for those of us unlucky enough to have been exposed to them, an airing uh, airing of grievances, as we said previously. With all of that being said... We do not want to come across as toxic fanboys just dogging the work of creators. These are simply storylines that we did not enjoy. So, Dave, what is first up on your list? You've got a theme going today. Yeah, as as the resident DC fanboy, it uh, should not come as a surprise that most of the books I'm going to be talking about are actually DC products. And as such, my theme is going to be books called Crisis. Now, as it turns out... uh, the word crisis has a very long storied history at DC. And anytime DC wants to uh, produce a story of consequence, something that has you know long-term consequences in the book that can shift the status quo, uh, anything that's a big crossover that's supposed to draw a lot of eyeballs, it's called something, something, something crisis in, in some way, shape, or form. Regrettably, not every book that uh, features that name is a winner, at least in my book. And I'm going to be completely honest, some of the books I'm going to talk about today are um, divisive, and these are not universally panned necessarily like some of the things that I've noticed on your list. Uh, There are those uh, fans who defend these stories. I just find myself not being able to do so. 
And so the first book uh, that I'd like to talk about today is Identity Crisis. It's a 2004 storyline written by Brad Meltzer with art by the incomparable Rags Morales. Um, it's a very pretty book, I can tell you that. There, there's really nothing wrong with the art. Um, but when it comes to the story, oof, this, this is a tough one to talk about. So you have a, a tragedy in the hero community. Uh, the elongated man's wife, uh, Sue Dibney, is uh, murdered. And the book is basically sort of a closed door whodunit with superheroes, which on the surface sounds exactly like my kind of jam. I'm a big fan of detective stories. I'm a big fan of, you know, murder mysteries. Uh, it's, you know, got a fantastic uh, tr um, thriller writer with uh, novelist Brad Meltzer crafting the story. So what in the world uh, then is wrong with this book? In short, um, it, it, it kind of craps to bed when it comes to uh, what it does with, with a whole list of characters. There are some very um, unfortunate choices happening in this book. So let, let's start with something simple. Um, in the course of investigating the death of, of Sue Dibney, the elongated man's wife, um, they start unearthing some, uh, shall we say, skeletons in the closet of the hero community, specifically the Justice League from the quote-unquote satellite era, when they had their headquarters on a satellite in orbit around Earth. Um, the story goes that a villain who has been a joke for many years, Dr. Light, used to be uh, significantly more vicious, and on a, during a visit to the satellite, Sue Dibney was attacked and raped by Dr. Light. In response, the heroes got together, and using Zatanna's magic powers, they wiped um, his mind and altered his personality to make him less dangerous. Batman apparently walked in on this, argued against it, and they went ahead and mind-wiped him as well. So in essence, uh, the, the base of the story is already that every hero who was in that satellite is kind of a, kind of a jerk. And, and not just um, uses questionable tactics uh, on villains, but even on a fellow hero in Batman. Um, so so that, that is a, a big problem that uh, kind of propels that story forward. Um, it also does some questionable things by killing off uh, Robin Tim Drake's father, his uh, remaining parental figure, making Tim Drake, who always stood uh, out among Robins as a Robin who still had parents, uh, now also an orphan who has to be taken in by Bruce Wayne. So now he's just, you know, another Robin. Um, the, the characterization of elongated man is, is really, really odd. The, the characterization, a lot of the heroes in general is, is very odd. It speaks to a fundamental misunderstanding of some of those characters. And then there is this absolutely mind-boggling scene where Deathstroke, a character that doesn't have superpowers, goes through the entire Justice League and takes them apart one by one, including Green Lantern, who has literally the most powerful weapon in the universe on his hand, and the Flash, who, who can move you know, at basically the speed of light nearly. And the fact that this regular dude, Deathstroke, just basically dismantles the entire Justice League is one of the weirdest and most bizarre scenes I have ever seen in a, a book like this. But what probably really takes the cake is the ultimate 
um, resolution of the story, which sees um, the Adam, Ray Palmer's ex-wife, Jean Loring, exposed as the culprit. She attacked Sue Dibney in order to try to scare the superhero community so the Adam may get in contact with her and get back together with her because she misses him. Which, I'm going to let that one sink in for a second. That's the resolution to the murder mystery. And then the heroes unceremoniously drop the murderer, Gene Loring, who's been part of the superhero community for years and knows everybody's secret identity. They drop her off at Arkham Asylum and move on at the end of the story. So although there are people who will probably defend this and there are good things about it, there's a couple of really cool scenes in there. The art, as I said earlier, is, is you know uniformly really good in this. I think the, the decidedly dark tone that it took, especially with characters that were traditionally more light, lighthearted, like, uh, you know, elongated man and his wife, the, the absolute odd inclusion of, of a, a rape scene in a superhero comic, which, which by the way, um, doesn't go away for many years. Every time Dr. Light shows up in another comic book after this, every writer that uses him has to make rape puns throughout like his appearances, which are, you know, distasteful and, and really have no place in superhero comics. Um, it just, the combination of those things ultimately make this um, one of the worst experiences I've had reading a superhero comic, Chris. Wow. So, um, I, I think this is, you know, me taking my own advice because as as a very elementary reader when it comes to DC content, you know, I'm mostly a Marvel reader. Um, these are the pitfalls that I want to avoid as I'm trying to kind of meander over to the distinguished competition. So I'm, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad in a way that uh, all three selections that you've given are ones that I have not read. I was surprised because. Brad Meltzer is a name that I recognize as as a very acclaimed author, New York Times bestseller. I've I've heard podcasts with him. I've I've read his work before, and I, I'm really surprised that I, I mean, uh, you know, we have I have writers on my list today that I hold in high regard, and you don't. Uh, we've said this before. You don't always have your fastball. Not everyone is going to be a gem. Um, so it, it is that is some really wild stuff. Uh, it is really problematic. Um, I, I know that there's an Avengers storyline, I think for Avengers 200, that details the um, the rape of Ca- uh, Captain Marvel, Ms. Marvel at the time, that, um, you know, in such, in a centennial, in, in, in a centennial issue, no less. Um, it, it's truly problematic. And um, I find at times for me, it's really hard to kind of go back in time and read older comics um, just just how tone deaf we were as a society and, you know, with predominantly straight white male writers, you know, and, and that can be mostly the same case now now today, but uh, it was almost exclusively the case back then. Um, it, it can be really troublesome to revisit older stuff like that. And I think if you removed, you know, some of these story elements um, out of the context of characters that have been around, you know, forever and have, you know, very clear characteristics and and very clear history. And, and, you know, there's probably a decent story in all this. But, you know, seeing, you know, Gene Loring uh, attacking, you know, Sue Dibney in the hope of getting her man back and accidentally killing her and 
and and you know the whole going back to the satellite era of, of Justice League, which was generally pretty upbeat, I would say, if if my memory holds up, and then inserting this really icky, you know, whole history there, and it's it's a very very odd retconning. Um, it's it's just it's just not very good in hindsight, I think. Anyways, Chris, what is your first worst comic that you've uh, ever read? All right, so I briefly hinted at it, but a, a writer that I hold in high regard, and this is one of the worst comics I've ever read, uh, that would be Brian Michael Bendis's Civil War II. Um, it was a crossover event in 2006, uh, art featuring artist David Marquez and Justin Ponser. The art's great. I mean, like, I, I think we're going to find that you know, with a lot of these selections, you know, art, art can cover up a lot of, a lot of stank when it comes to storyline, but, um, that was not the case here. It was, it was insurmountable, uh, if you will. Um, so civil war two, um, of course is the second iteration of the superhero civil war. The first one being in the, uh, the mid aughts between captain America and iron man, uh, this one is uh, the opposing forces between Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers, and Tony Stark's Iron Man. Uh, apparently, Iron Man can't help himself when it comes to fighting with other superheroes. Um, but it's just a real character assassination of Carol Danvers here. It's just a really bad look for her. And and to a point where you want to sit down with Bendis and be like, what did she do to you? Um, so the basic premise is that, um, this new, uh, inhuman, this was during the time where, where Marvel is really trying to push the, the, uh, poor substitute for mutants, uh, the inhumans. Um, so a lot of inhuman centric storylines with their, with their mainline crossovers. So Ulysses Kane, who is a student at Ohio State University, he's exposed to the Terrigen Mist, which causes individuals who, are prone to turn into human to go through that metamorphosis process. He turns into an inhuman and his power is to foresee the future. Um, he foresees this dystopian future where a celestial destroyer destroys the Avengers mansion and all this. And he goes to the Avengers and says, this is what's going to happen. And he is dismissed by Iron Man. Um, and then it, it basically ends up to where you have two different warring sides where Iron Man and, and Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel is of the side of Ulysses and believes that we should stop these crimes before they happen. And Iron Man says you cannot prosecute people for crimes that they have not yet committed. We'd also don't know, like, what's this guy's repute? He just wakes up one day and suddenly has these visions. This guy comes out of the woodworks and suddenly we're supposed to take him at his word. Does he have an agenda? And, and you know, it, it all culminates where Ulysses has a vision that Spider-Man Miles Morales is going to kill Steve Rogers, Captain America, who at the time, unbeknownst to everyone, is the secret Hydra sleeper agent Hydra Cap that will, you know, subsequently follow in um, Secret Empire. But Ulysses has this vision that Miles Morales, Spider-Man, is going to kill, stab through the heart, Steve Rogers on the steps of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. So Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel, resorts to 
arresting a young black man for a crime he has yet to commit based on this newcomer and his vision. It is a terrible look for Carol Danvers. It is a terrible look for Marvel, in my opinion, that you are arresting a young black male for a crime that he did not commit and does not end up committing. So um, then you have Carol Danvers subsequently fatally delivering a fatal blow to Iron Man, Tony Stark, who is resorted to living somehow in his AI. It's really messy and it's really just better left unsaid. Uh, So Civil War 2 is first up on the worst comics I've ever read. So in fairness, when it comes to this one, I I never actually sat down and read the event itself, Um, but I did kind of run into uh, repeated tie-in issues. Uh, particularly I've been reading, you know, uh, Cap Marvel books for a little while. And of course, Ms. Marvel, who is, you know, Kamala Khan is one of my all-time favorite characters. And so as such, I keep, you know, kind of bumping up against the story from various angles again and again. And every time I do, Carol comes across as extremely um, unlikable and out of character. So if that holds true for the main series as well, then uh, no thank you, Chris, and thank you for the warning. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, of uh, Carol Danvers, um, and I- including the current series, which I think is knocking it out of the park. Yeah. And, and so, you know, seeing her written poorly and out of character is not something that I'm really interested in going through. Plus, how often do we need to have superheroes beating the snot out of each other for some yep. reason or another? Can we just, like, focus on beating up the villains for crying out loud? Good God. I I knew this I knew this was going to be an alley oop uh, for me to 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 bring up because you have you and I share that same sentiment of heroes beating heroes like come on already um, yeah and and um, congratulations by the way to Kelly Thompson for her um, recent Eisner Award winning uh, her Eisner Award win um, for best new series for Black Widow which is on my to read list um, and I've also heard great things from you on her. Um, uh, Captain Marvel series, which I plan to check out. I love her work on um, Rogue and Gambit and Mr. and Mrs. X. I, I love what she's doing. And I'm super excited about her writing Amazing Spider-Man. I am as well. Uh, her her Captain Marvel series has you know really been knocking it out of the park. Uh, may it continue for a long time. And now I need to check out her Black Widow series as well, because I did not know she was writing Black Widow right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dave... All right, let's head back to the crisis station. All right, time for another crisis. This one's a little more recent. Uh, The series I'm getting ready to talk about ran from 2018 till 2019. And again, we're in a similar boat where there are people who who enjoyed the series and will defend it. And, you know, if you enjoyed it, good for you. Uh, To me, it was one of the most unpleasant experiences I've had reading superhero comics right up there with Identity Crisis. And that is, of course, Heroes in Crisis, uh, written by Tom King with art by Clay Mann. Now, how how do I summarize this? I think you're going to see a pattern and some parallels between this series and Identity Crisis. Um, So Heroes in Crisis focuses on a um, camp hospital location of sorts where heroes who have gone through some kind of trauma can go to heal. Uh, It is called Sanctuary, and it's basically supposed to be like this mental health facility. Uh, The problem uh, right 
off the top of the story, however, is that rather than having counselors and stuff there, the whole place is run by some kind of weird artificial intelligence that is supposed to be counseling people that show up there. And what we have is a, once again, a murder mystery where uh, several heroes turn up dead at Sanctuary. Um, you have various suspects, including Booster Gold and Harley Quinn. Um, and people are trying to figure out what exactly happened at Sanctuary and why these heroes that were there to heal their mental health died. Now, I'm going to have to take a moment and back up to um, get to the point of why this is such an unpleasant experience. Um, so, so the natural place to begin is probably the Flash, specifically my favorite Flash, Wally West. Wally West was the Flash for a huge chunk of my uh, comic book reading fandom until uh, Barry Allen returned in the Flash Rebirth several years ago. And so for all intents and purposes, for pretty much my lifespan, um, Wally West was the Flash. Come the new 52 reboot, first Wally kind of disappeared um, and then was replaced with a reinvented African-American version of Wally, uh, which on the surface is not, you know, a bad thing. Uh, however, the new Wally and original Wally had very few things in common, especially considering that at this point in the comic books, Wally had been fully grown, married, had children, twins, um, and had served as the main Flash for many years. And the new 52 Wally was still a teenager and was operating as Kit Flash. So a lot of fans had been clamoring for Wally to return in some way, shape, or form. And their wish was granted with the Rebirth Initiative when uh, Wally basically managed to come from the old continuity into the new continuity um, through, you know, story MacGuffin. Either way, there was a lot of um, celebration because now we were able to have the original Wally and the new Wally, which also has now a decent following and a lot of fans, side by side as two characters who are named after the same grandfather and our cousins. So, yay, we get to have both versions. Only at some point it seemed like DC wasn't quite sure what to do with Wally, and things became increasingly depressing around the character, because when he managed to come back into current continuity, his wife and children did not. This accumulated in a um, storyline in the pages of The Flash called Flash War, where Wally was attempting to rewrite reality to return his... Um, wife and children into the new continuity and Barry Allen, the flash stopped him. So Wally ends up at sanctuary where he is grieving. Now, why do I have to talk so much about Wally? Because, uh, the conclusion of this particular storyline postulates that Wally accidentally through his grief discharged some kind of speed force wave that killed all these people. And then, instead of coming clean and talking about this as an accident, uh, proceeds to use his speed powers to travel through time, frame other people, and try to cover up the crime. Which is so far removed from who Wally West is as a character, what he has stood for for many fans. It's just a horrible, horrible look. Now, the Wally treatment is probably at the top of the list of why Heroes in Crisis just doesn't work for me. But there are numerous um, 
smaller instances of things that just make you go, huh? Um, Booster Gold is written, written wildly out of character. Um, Lois Lane receives a leak, uh, some documents sent to her of what, you know, that something happened at Sanctuary and that this place exists. And rather than talking to her husband, Superman, about it and seeing how they're going to proceed, she uh, proceeds to just leak it to the public because, you know, that's just what we do. Um, and thereby exacerbating the problem. Um, the oddest thing, though, to me is that running through this entire nine issue miniseries, you have these, you know, testimonials where heroes are, you know, talking to the AI and are, I guess talking to a camera and are getting recorded. And you have these nine panel grid pages that are like supposed to be these. Um, relevant uh insightful moments where heroes kind of come clean about things that bother them and instead some of them come across as just really odd and tone deaf i think the most egregious one may be um the batgirl testimonial she is uh at that point wearing a suit that looks so painted on that you can actually see her belly button through the suit and she proceeds to start taking off her belt and lifting up her shirt in a really, really odd way. And then you realize, oh, she's showing off her scars from where the Joker shot her and initially paralyzed her. Um, it's just a very, very odd scene where the art clashes, I think, with the intent of the writer. Um, there's also a testimonial where um, Green Lantern Hal Jordan says, oh, I don't, I don't even know what willpower is, which is very odd considering his ring is powered by willpower. It just kind of makes Hal come across as kind of an idiot. And it's just those kinds of moments are sprinkled throughout the whole series. It much like identity crisis. I think the, the central mystery doesn't hold up very well. The way it's resolved is, is really tone deaf to the character histories and it continuously mischaracterizes uh, very popular characters in a way that feels odd. Like it's, you know, these these parts are not written to the characters. It's almost like King needed certain roles filled in the story and just kind of drew names out of a hat, no matter if those roles in the story would fit the characters he was using or not. So again, uh, this is not an event that I've read or been exposed to. My only exposure to it is how divided the fan base is about it. Um you know, based on what I've seen on Twitter and whatnot, it, it, it seems to be very, very divided of people who enjoyed it and people who feel uh, along the same lines as you do. Um, I can, however, relate to a fan favorite character um, going through some horrific characterization and character assassination, if you will, which I'll get to in my next pick um, for whatever reason that isn't very clear. Um, so on, on, in that regard, I can totally relate. But um, I, as, as far as it comes with, to the, the character of Flash, I keep hearing a lot of similar sentiments, you know, about Wally West being the best Flash and all of this. And I just being completely overwhelmed and just worn out by the Flash Flash series of constantly running back in time and screwing around with timelines. I just I just don't know um, how to feel about the character. Well, I mean, the problem is that, uh, to me at least, as somebody who came, you know, to comic books in the wake of uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, huh, there's another crisis, which is, of course, where Barry Allen died and then ultimately was replaced by Wally for, you know, several decades afterwards. I came 
two comics in the era where Wally was the Flash and Barry was a distant memory. And so I've never really connected very well with the Barry Allen character. And when I think Flash, I, I still think Wally West. I mean, he's he's the Flash in Grant Morrison's acclaimed JLA. He is the Flash in the Justice League Unlimited cartoon. He He's the Flash to me. And so... Um, Although I've kind of warmed up to Barry a little bit over time, uh, to me, Wally is still, I think, the more interesting character. And I'm actually thrilled to see that in the current Flash series, Wally is uh, once again the main Flash. And that that series has been trying to do some very heavy lifting to fix the... um, the crisis caused by heroes in crisis and trying to bring that character back to where, you know, he should be. All right, Chris, that brings us, uh, I, I just, I just saw what you're getting ready to talk about, dude. <laughs> Must we really? All right, let's do it. Uh, let's, I'll, I'll go abbreviate it. I'm not going to be long winded on this because I don't want to be like pigeonholed as the anti dance lot guy. I mean, he's a delightful human being. Um, and there are large swaths of his Spider-Man writing that I do enjoy. I mean, for Pete's sake, um, Renew Your Vows is one of my favorite, all-time favorite Spider-Man entries and that I've nerd-commended on this show before. But sometimes you swing big and you hit a home run. Sometimes you swing big and it's a big old swing and a miss. And for me, perhaps the biggest swing and a miss is Dead No More, The Clone Conspiracy. Now, you say crisis... I say Marvel does the same crap. It's just not Crisis. They love recycling old crossover titles. Secret Wars, Heroes Reborn, Clone something or other. Uh, yeah, so this is just uh, this is just a case in when uh, you know Marvel and company just don't know when to stop. So um, and and one of the previous instances that where, where I detailed where where Dan Slott likes to mix things up just for the sake of mixing them up, and it really just falls flat. So for those of you who have not read Dead No More: The Clone Conspiracy, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. Um, after a really, what, I think what's so disappointing for me too is this was one of the strongest parts of that era for Slot for me was this man in red, the man in the red suit. It was legitimately, you know, suspenseful and intriguing. And it kept me checking out every issue. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? After a very long kind of tease, it is revealed that the man in red, this kind of nefarious character behind the scenes working in the shadows, is none other than fan favorite character Ben Riley, a.k.a. the clone, maybe not clone, the clone of Peter Parker, who is this nefarious character who has resurrected via cloning process everyone who has died in Peter Parker's, you know, tight circle. Um, So long story short, it just turns Ben Riley into this antagonistic villain that really is so disingenuous and so out of line with his character. I mean, for Pete's sake, it's Peter Parker, literally for Pete's sake. It's for all intents uh, for all intents and purposes it's peter parker and we're turning him into this shadowy anti-hero i mean he took up the scarlet spider moniker and mantle after this series i think peter david took on that title but it is so misaligned with the core of who ben riley is that it was just like where is this coming from 
So uh, dead no more, the clone conspiracy. And then, and oh, and then all the people that he's cloned start turning to dust or deteriorating or something like that. It's been a while since I read it and I could not put myself through rereading it um, based on my next selection. Um, so yeah, dead no more, the clone conspiracy. It, I, I the, the whole prospect of bigger, more, b- bigger is better and like Spider-Verse and Spider-Get and sometimes it works with Slot and company and sometimes it just falls flat. And this is one where it absolutely falls flat to the point of borderline offensive. As a uh, <clears throat> huge Ben Riley fan, I was very, very disappointed with this story. Um, and I was even disappointed, I have to say, with uh, Peter David's follow-up Scarlet Spider book, which... You know the the Ben Riley in that book did not exactly feel like the Ben Riley that I had you know grown up reading back in in the Clone Saga, and so I'm on the one hand extremely excited uh, for what's getting ready to happen in the Amazing Spider-Man book with um, Ben Riley taking over as Spider-Man for a while. Um, I'm hoping though that they uh, they do some uh, heavy lifting and kind of restore Ben to the character that he was before Dan Slott got a hold of him. Because at this point, I think uh, this story did some really bad damage to the character's appeal. Um, so so here's hoping, Chris. Yeah, and and I I neglected to say because I was just trying to rush through it. Um, the man in red, Ben Riley, was also known as the Jackal, and and although there are elements of the Clone Saga from the '90s that I do enjoy, it's you know parts of it is very you know whimsical and fun and it's bouncing back and forth, a whodunit type thing. Um, it is one of the much maligned and most hotly contested eras. And why would you want to double down on that by reintroducing someone else under the, the jackal nomenclature? So why would you want more of that? And so again, it's just doubling down, tripling down on, on things that should not be brought up to the, the poker table again. I also really don't understand why Ben Riley, of all people, would take on the jackal monitor, considering all that the jackal did to him. Exactly. Um, it's just it's pretty tone deaf and and you know it's just so out of nowhere because when i think of ben riley and those those 90s issues of amazing spider-man with him you know in the suit it is this peter pan thing that we can't seem to escape with the character of spider-man never grows up but it was he was free and he was single and he wasn't tied down and it was this just lovable goofus again and like kind of went back to that core of Spider-Man. He was this, what what shows up in the clone conspiracy. That's not who that character was. This is a this was like an invasion of the body snatchers, if you will. So it's, I, 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 too, am excited, um, especially with the roster of writers that we've previously detailed on on who's going to be working on that. Saladin Ahmed, Zeb Wells, uh, Jed McKay, uh, Kelly Thompson. I'm super excited to see what they do with the character and hope that it is much more with the other stuff. Here, here. All right, Dave, final crisis. Well, this is not final crisis. Uh, this is oh, that's another. That's another crisis. Yes. Uh, so, so we're going to talk about countdown to final crisis for a moment. So, um, I'm a huge fan of the series 52. Uh, when it first came out, it was really 
um, innovative and experimental, a weekly comic book series that came out for 52 issues purporting to show a lost year in um, the history of the DC universe and focusing squarely on um, lesser known characters and B-listers. It was really a jam piece for some of the best writers uh, that DC has had the pleasure to work with, including you know Grant Morrison and Greg Rucka. Um, 52 was absolutely fantastic and still uh, holds up totally uh, today. However, apparently then uh, editor-in-chief Dan DiDio was not a fan of 52. And so when he greenlit the next weekly series, Countdown, which later was rebranded as Countdown to Final Crisis, uh, he decided this is going to be 52 done right. Now you can imagine where this is going. It, it is a total stinker. And I think you're going to find a lot less defenders for this particular series. Much like 52, it ran for 52 issues, came out weekly, had uh, multiple storyline strands that were supposed to come together in the end. And it's all crap. It's so bad. It also is particularly painful because Paul Dini, who very famously uh, was involved with uh, Batman the Animated Series and the uh, the writing of the Arkham games, sort of was the main architect of this um, on the writing side. Although, you know, he wasn't really the, a writer on the series so much as like a coordinator and you had a rotating cast of writers and artists coming and going. But man, where do I even start with this sucker? 52 issues of pain. And I read every issue hoping it was going to get as good as 52. It was going to click. The, the disparate elements are going to come together. And they never do. Um, so you have a storyline where Holly Robinson, a sidekick to Catwoman, and Harley Quinn get inducted into a women's shelter that happens to be run by Granny Goodness, uh, one of the uh, hench people of Darkseid for some reason. Um, not 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 sure what was going on there. Um, then you have two Flash villains who are supposedly reformed, the Trickster and Pied Piper. Uh, they're framed for the murder of Bart Allen. Uh, Impulse, Flash, uh, don't worry, he gets better. Um, and they're on the run, chained to each other. Um, th- that whole storyline is basically just... Uh, a whole bunch of gay jokes uh, directed at Pied Piper, which are even you know more tone deaf today than they were back then, and that's saying something. Uh, then there's the storyline of Mary Marvel, who lost her powers, uh, and then t- gets the powers of Black Adam and turns evil, gives up those powers and turns good, and then goes home and Darkseid is sitting on her couch and offers to give her Black Adam's powers back, and she can be evil again, and she takes it. Uh, it's it just when, when you really start getting into some of these summaries, it's just bizarre. Oh, oh, Jimmy Olsen starts developing superpowers, and he's trying to understand why, but the superpowers only kick in when he's threatened, when his life is threatened, so nobody believes him when he says he has superpowers. Uh, yeah, that, that, that was fun, not. Mr. Action, it looks like. Oh my God, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Crap. It was so bad. And then you have like, you know, there's a character very famous from um, Crisis on uh, Infinite Earths, the Monitor. Uh, here we have a whole race of monitors who every issue just kind of stand around and do nothing. And I'm not quite sure where that story was supposed to go, but it went nowhere. Um, and then 
this probably was kind of supposed to be like the main storyline, but it felt totally flat. And that's one of the monitors recruits Donna Troy, Jason Todd, and the Adam Ryan Choi to go looking for the Adam Ray Palmer, who is missing since the events of, oh, oh, wait for it, Identity Crisis, <laughs> where, where his ex-wife went, you know, bonkers, because apparently Ray Palmer knows something that can save the, the multiverse. And they are bouncing like from different different earth to different earth through the multiverse looking for the sky and the characterizations here of 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 donna troy and jason todd in particular are completely off from what those characters are supposed to be um it's just it's 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 chris it's unholy it's 52 (laughs) issues of absolute junk none of it works none of it clicks and the real joke here is this series was supposed to lead directly into grant morrison's Final Crisis, hence the name Countdown to Final Crisis. And then Grant Morrison completely and utterly ignored this series to craft his story. He was like, you know what? I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna bother with this crap. So none of it connects. The, ti- <laughs> the title is even a joke, Chris. Even the title makes no sense. It's so bad. See, I had to double check and make sure that you weren't confused by a different crisis because I saw Paul Denny's name as the architect of this. And I was like, maybe he's mistaken. Maybe it's one of the other 74 crises. But no, yeah. So I'm just in a quick Google search. I'm seeing everything that you're saying to me as it plays out. And it is just wild. And I really do think um, based on some of the stuff that's come out in interviews, it seems to be very much that Dan DiDio was sort of dictating what the story was supposed to be. And as you can see, it did not work. Dan, I don't know what you were thinking sometimes, my man. But between this and, and wanting to kill off Dick Grayson, Nightwing, and Infinite Crisis, and th- th- there's, there are so many bad choices that came from your table. I don't know. I don't know, man. You should have just basked in the glory that is 52 because you were wrong. 52 was Countdown to Final Crisis done right. So you say tomato, I say tomato. You say Dio, I say Casada, um, because I, I everything that you explain about the editorial mandated awfulness completely hits home with me. I totally believe that. All right, Chris, bring it. This one is this one's trouble. No, it literally is trouble. Uh, gen- ladies and gentlemen, we saved the worst for last. Um, so let me set a scene for you. It's been a crazy week for Dave and I, and, um, last night in prep for this episode, I was sitting on two, uh, civil war two clone conspiracy did no more, what have you. Those were easy slam dunks. Um, but one of the benefits of me being late to the comics game, uh, my late teens, early twenties, I really only read like recommended stuff highly regarded stuff. I go by like Marvel unlimited reading lists. The only time that I really kind of encounter stuff is, you know, if it happens current, I was reading civil war two at the time I was reading clone conspiracy at the time. Um, you know, the only time I really encounter stuff that, um, is, is pretty bad. Like Chuck Austin's X-Men, um, is when I'm doing a comprehensive read through. So I was really trying to struggle. I-, I was really struggling trying to find a third selection. And here's a shout out slash shaking of the fist to my buddies at the hashtag Drunk Pete family because they always um, throw shade and malign the story of trouble. 
um, as it is a Spider-Man centric uh, storyline, I guess. Um, and uh, for, for one reason or another, I had managed to avoid it. So I was like, well, it's only five issues. It's eight o'clock. I put the kids to bed. I'll check out this storyline. Damn it, guys. Why did I read this book? Um, so long story short, um, this is a retcon that no one asked for. Um, it's basically like a backstory of uh, Aunt May and Uncle Ben and Richard and Mary Parker, Peter Parker's parents, quote unquote, um, in which Aunt May is very promiscuous in her late teens and gets pregnant from Richard Parker, Peter's father, when they're working in the Hamptons. And she's going to have an abortion, but she doesn't, decides to keep the baby and ends up giving the baby to Richard and Mary to raise. So Peter is actually Aunt May's kid. Uncle Ben is sterile, so it couldn't be his. And there's a fortune teller involved. Am I missing anything here, Dave? Pain. <laughs> Suffering. Really, really horrible dialogue. Absolutely atrocious relationships you know what the problem is not a single one of these characters not richard not mary not ben not may not a single one of these characters comes across as likable they're four self-involved jerks in relationship drama for what four or five issues it is absolutely pathetic chris it is it, it, it's just so bad i'm getting nauseous just thinking about it i think i think what really drives it home and it's the final nail in the coffin are these covers the covers, um, if you'll do a quick Google search for Trouble. So so Trouble is a romance comic book limited series published by Marvel on their Epic Comics imprint. It's written by Mark Millar, illustrated by the Dodsons, who I typically enjoy their art. But, I mean, no amount of art, um, whatever deity you want to claim as your Odin, uh, claim as your own, Odin, Thor, Jesus, Buddha... Muhammad, nobody could overlook just the awful storyline here. Um, the basic concept was created by Jill, Bill Jemis and, oh, what do we know? Joe Quesada. Um, whew. Yeah. So so uh, I, I say all that. I say all that. What the, the, the final nail in the coffin would made this so traumatic were these awful, awful, awful covers of these, like, sassy preteen girls they're, they're photographs, though, that have nothing to do with any of the characters in the story, unless this is supposed to be the photorealistic depiction of May and Mary. I don't know. It's just all a hot, sick mess. Don't read this book ever. Don't even do it on a dare. Oh, unless there's a lot of money involved that you're going to be receiving. Oh, my God. It's, it's, it's by far the worst thing I've ever read. I apologize to the other creators of all the other books that I just maligned. And in the previous episode, Trouble is by far the worst. Maybe if you believe Trouble is the worst, it's time for us to read Marvel. Because I think I think that one may, in fact, be the worst thing ever produced by Marvel, period. That's the smut for smut's sake one, isn't it? That, that, that one is... 
that one makes trouble look like shakespeare um but yeah trouble is about one of the most pathetic spider-man adjacent things that i've ever laid eyes on uh, i don't think you're going to find anybody who will ever defend this book it's just it's so so bad and and thank god they decided not to use this retcon and and make it regular continuity and and you know may is really you know uh peter park or some other and by the way are there any worse is there a worse combination of words than promiscuous aunt may in the english language here's my thing who in the hell like thought this you know what we're missing this old grandmotherly maternal matriarch figure what if she was promiscuous back in her heyday like who thought that up who looked at uh Per, uh, uh, a perpetually 80 something year old woman it was like i bet she was a real fast girl back in the day can we also just talk for a second about the fact that aunt may's a redhead and calls ben tiger oh yeah. the woman's to quote to quote my my previous entry of favorite quotes the woman's as subtle as a gun i i don't want to say that that's really weird that her son slash nephew slash whatever you want to call it ends up with a redhead that calls him tiger there is something really freudianly disturbing here like like i'm just ready to move on chris can we do nerd commendations now (laughs) let's let's go all right that's it that's it that's all don't read these comic books please don't okay we come back we're gonna give you the good stuff nerd commendations after this All right, we are back for our final segment, the good stuff. I promise, no more trauma. Let's begin our... All right, Dave, what do you have on tap for us this week? Please save us. Well, after a really good shower now that we've talked about trouble, um, I feel much better and I'm willing to talk about a young adult series, uh written by Madeline Rue uh, called the Asylum series. There are three main novels. It's a bit of a trilogy, Asylum, Sanctum, and Catacomb. Now, as somebody who has worked with, you know, middle schoolers, it's not uncommon for me to occasionally pick up some young adult books and read them. And as a lover of horror, I'm, of course, always looking for some good scary stories. And the Asylum series is really quite good. It focuses on 16-year-old Dan Crawford, who attends a prestigious college prep summer program in New Hampshire. He befriends a couple of other teens, and together they investigate the old psychiatric hospital uh, that has been converted to a dormitory. And whoever thought that was a good idea needs to watch more horror movies, I believe. Um, so the series is extremely good, uh, especially, you know, beyond some of the young adulty trappings of relationship drama and the like. Um, there are really uh, interesting, scary set pieces going on in the series. Um, the first and second book both really focus very carefully on the asylum and the stuff uh, historically around it, which is really, really solid. The only letdown in the series, I think, a little bit is is the final uh, book. Uh, Catacomb, which does not return to the asylum, but instead uh, takes the three main characters on a road trip to New Orleans. Uh, And it doesn't quite click um, nearly as well as the first two books. Uh, It's sort of a, a, 
a a letdown ending. I don't think it really quite you know hit all the notes it needed to to wrap up the story in a satisfying way. But uh, I think the journey is definitely worth it, especially for the first couple of books, Asylum and Sanctum. There are some really, really cool, creepy set pieces going on there. Uh, and, and definitely, if you're into uh, some of the more young adult side of literature and you don't mind a little bit of teen angst in your uh, stories, I think uh, our listeners are going to enjoy these. Now, Dave, um, I, I've not heard of this before, um, but I just on on Goodreads here, it is uh, saying it's very similar and it's perfect for fans of the New York Times bestseller, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Would you agree with that? So uh, story wise, I don't think they're that close to each other. I think uh, the comparison comes about because both series rely on like uh, photographs. Uh, weird photographs that they include in the story and that sometimes link to the story. I'm not a big fan of that particular gimmick. Um, And so I've pretty much ignored the photographs. I I don't think there's that strong connection between those two books, though, beyond the photograph gimmick that they both use. All right, I'm getting braver. I mean, it all started in October. I feel like I'm getting braver. Maybe I can check this one out. It's not so scary. I mean, it is. You it is say that at, you're an expert at horror. It is. It is aimed at young adults, so it, it shouldn't freak you out too much, Chris. All right, Chris, what are you nerd commending this week? So, if you follow me on Twitter, that nerd Chris, you'll know that I recently wrapped up a read through of Volume One of Marvel's Generation X, which follows the third iteration of the X franchise's New Mutants on the Block. Amongst mutant fans, it is a common proposition that your favorite team is usually the one that you grew up reading and that each team is truly a product of its time. For example, if you started reading X-Men comics in the late 70s, then you clung to that team, Cyclops, Storm, Colossus. If you're an 80s reader, the New Mutants were your squad. If you're a 90s kid, then it's Generation X for you, and so on and so forth. With all that being said, I'm a pretty atypical comic book reader. As I've previously stated on this episode and previous ones, I didn't get a jumpstart on reading comics until my late teens and early 20s. Nevertheless, I was very interested to test this generational theory. As a 90s baby, I decided to dive right into Generation X by Scott Lobdell and Chris Pashalo, and needless to say, the theory proved to be quite true in my case. The core roster of students at the Massachusetts branch of Xavier School is a perfect hodgepodge of teen angst that truly encapsulates what it was like growing up in the 90s. Fans of X-Men, the animated series, will immediately recognize their favorite mall rat, Jubilation Lee, Jubilee, as she immediately, on the first page, engages in an angst off with fellow classmates, Manoye St. Croix, M, and Paige Guthrie, Husk. The teen team roster is filled out by Guyth a goth icon, Jonathan Starsmore, Chamber, East L.A. bad boy, Angelo Espinosa, Skin, and the mild-mannered ultimate nice guy, Everett Thomas, Sink. The group is mentored by Emma Frost, my new favorite character in all of comicdom, yes, I've pulled a 180, and Banshee, he screams a lot. Inside joke. <sighs> what drives this home as a series that I highly recommend are the compelling characters at the center of it all. Jubilee is struggling to adjust to the downgrade from the X-Men roster to a group of her contemporaries. Paige is trying to step out of the shadow of her older brother, Cannonball, the new mutants, and eschew any stereotypes of a Kentucky farm girl by being the hardest working student and teammate that Xavier's has ever seen. 
Rich girl and debutante Monet battles a traumatic past full of family secrets and her inability to socialize outside of state dinners and galas. To her credit, she's the only one who can hang with the white clean. Her clapbacks, as the kitties say, are legendary. Chamber has to deal with the trauma of literally not having a face from the lips down, nor a chest, as that section of his body has been transformed into an unkept keg of psionic energy. Skin literally has six feet of excess skin that he has to figure out what to do with and still tries to pick up girls in spite of his gray complexion. Meanwhile, Sink is just trying to be the best guy he can. He's truly a gem, and I'm so glad that he's being featured on the current X-Men title that just started. Another hallmark of this series is the incredible art of Chris Bashalo. It is truly Hall of Fame level stuff. It's creepy, it's weird, it's elemental, it's raw, it's downright scary. His character design for the villain Onplate is pure nightmare fuel in the best way possible. Bashalo is and has always been a personal favorite of mine, and this is up there with some of his best work ever. Nevertheless, I must exercise caution alongside this nerd commendation. Co-creator and initial writer of the series, Scott Lobdell, has a long and troubled history as far as his behavior towards his female colleagues. And the subsequent writers on the series, Warren Ellis and Brian Wood, uh, Brian Wood are no different. The characterization of skin, Angelo Espinosa, is also at times particularly troubling as a very stereotypical view of a Mexican-American character written by a white man in the 90s. Additionally, Marvel Unlimited is missing a good chunk of issues throughout this 75-issue series. Not a terrible amount of storyline and plot is lost as far as I was able to tell, but being the completionist comic book reader that I am, it still would be nice to have them all. Marvel Unlimited, please give me all the titles. If you're able to overlook those blemishes, then I highly recommend Gen X. Come for the Bashalo art and fall in love with these crazy kids. Now, see, on the one hand, I'd be more than happy to give this one a shot. And on the other hand, you said Lobdell, who to me, you know, did a real disservice to uh, several New 52 DC properties, uh, including uh, a really atrocious Red Hood and Outlaws. Uh, at the beginning of the new 52 and and his run on superman was really um rough for me as well so um if i do you think i can overlook that from him or is it still worth checking out for somebody who really dislikes lopdell's writing generally speaking well seeing that this is a, a new creation uh by and large of, of, of a roster of characters certainly not jubilee um but they they're largely kind of his co-creation. So um, maybe this is like kind of some new blood and you don't have kind of the backstory of the, in the, in the previous history of those characters that, that is, that it's going to disappoint you. Hmm, fair enough. All right. That wraps up another episode of the nerd by word podcast. Thank you for helping us air our grievances. Thanks for putting up with our misery. And we hope that you will be able to avoid these books and find some stuff that you do enjoy. As always, if you like what you hear, be sure to give us a five-star rating on Apple podcast or your favorite podcasting platform. We are on Apple Podcasts, We're on Spotify, Amazon, TuneIn radio app, or nerdbyword.com. You can also find us on social media uh, at that nerd Chris and at that nerd Dave, or 
at Nerd by Word. Feel free to engage with us. We'd uh, love to hear your thoughts on the show, uh, suggestions for future topics. Uh, we're standing by to talk to you, our listeners. And if you're a big mutant fan like me, be sure to check out our sibling podcast for my radical mutant agenda on X of Words amongst my other merry mutant mates. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd By Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Thank you.